So I've got to ask you, how are you getting on with your reading and writing out of Ephesians? Has it happened or is it stalled or? You got two weeks to go. Keep going. <laughs> I really encourage you to read and write. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place of devotion and meditation. It really just brings things, brings to light. So um, I encourage you in that. Well, let's just pray again. I'd like to pray again if that's, uh, that's okay. Father, we, uh, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We uh, thank you for its instruction. We know at times it, it pierces our souls. And uh, this morning, Father, as we look at your word, it, it may be one of those times as we're commanded to walk in the light. Father, we pray that uh, we will be receptive to your words. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you will convict us, you will refine us, you will uh, shape us into being like Christ. That is our desire, Lord. And uh, We pray as we open your word this morning uh, that this will be our experience. We pray this in the powerful name of uh, Christ our Saviour. Amen. On a dark and foggy night, the, the captain of a massive battleship spotted a faint light in the distance. So as a captain, he instructed his signalman to to send a message to that faint light. Alter your course 10 degrees south. The captain received an immediate response. Alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain arced up. The captain of a battleship is kind of a powerful person. He arced up and he's obviously not used to receiving orders rejected. And he repeated the message, uh, this time with greater force. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain of this vessel. Almost instantly, another message was received. Calm and to the point. I'm a seaman. Third class Jones, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was furious. How dare a third class seaman command him to alter his course of his battleship? He responded, young man, I repeat, alter your course 10 degrees south. This is a battleship. Then came this reply as the light pierced through the darkness. Captain, I repeat, alter your course 10 degrees north. This is the lighthouse. <laughs> this fictional story highlights the fact that lighthouses should be obeyed and should never be ignored because lighthouses are there to protect vessels and souls. To ignore or defy a lighthouse is to abandon reason in favour for folly. And God's light is like that too. All too often as men and women we, we shrink back from God's light in fear or we defy it in arrogance or we ignore it to our peril. Yet God's light through His Holy Spirit transforms and guides the believer towards righteousness, goodness and truth. 
As we'll see today, we are, as followers of Christ, commanded to walk in the light. We are to reflect God's glory to fellow believers to ensure that the dangers of their surrounds, the perils they are facing, don't become overwhelming. We are to walk as children of light and we'll find today to expose the deeds of darkness. We're not to be like that stubborn, self-confident captain, unwilling to change the, the course of the ship. We not allow our sinful flesh uh, to dictate our course in life. We need to heed God's warnings to the Ephesians and to walk in His ways. As followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, this is an incredibly important principle that we're discussing today. Because we are His reflective agents. We're not the light in ourselves, you realise that, eh? We're not the light. We just reflect Christ. And that reflection should mirror the transforming power of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And for it not to be so, there are serious consequences. Let's read uh, the text together in Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 5 actually, sorry, Ephesians chapter 5. Starting at verse 3 and we'll read down to verse 14. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous this is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Through the past uh, few weeks, we've been walking through chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Ephesians. 
And we, we've seen Paul's thoughts, his, his lofty thoughts about who we are in Christ in the first three chapters really come and point down to the fact, well, because of that tremendous position you are in Christ, there, there needs to be a behavioural change that relates to that. Because of who you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, your behaviour should mirror certain things. You are an image bearer of him. And what we've been particularly looking at in the last couple of weeks is lists of virtues and vices. Vices are those things that are always aligned by Paul to the, the things of the flesh, right? The things that, that are the unregenerate person does or we all did prior to coming to Christ. But he lines it up with virtues, virtues which are part of the new person, part of the new creation that God is creating in each one of us. We are his workmanship and by his grace and through his spirit he is, he is pouring out upon us a things that should shape us and refine us as a part of his grace. As part of our obedience to this and our walk, none of these virtues form any merit with God. I've said this time and time again. None of these virtues, none of these gifts of grace can in any way have any merit with God. Our response to his love. That's what we call being gospel-centred in our life. It's what we call walking in a manner worthy of our calling. When these things are evident in our life, it's showing that the impact of the glorious gospel of Christ is shaping us every day, every moment. And the way we walk, and the way we think, the way we speak, and the way we act. As we have read these verses today, these are really edgy verses, right? These are, these are getting to a pointy end of, of a fairly heavy exhortation by Paul to these Ephesians. Verses 3 to 6 again highlights that. You have two lists of three vices, if you like. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, foolish talk or crude joking. So verse 3 has three lists of vices. Sexual immorality, impurity and covetousness. Verse 4 has three. No filthiness, foolish talk or crude joking. So Paul once again returns to works of the flesh. He breaks this section into two overall and here he's focusing on works of the flesh. Sexual sins and greed and works of the tongue if you like. Sinfulness of speech. And he's highlighting these things in a negative way to show this should be absolutely no part of a Christian's life. Should be no part of the believer's life in Ephesus primarily. 
he's saying there's no way light and darkness should mix as we'll come to see. Because you've got to remember this culture of Ephesus, right? This is a culture that is saturated with pervasive sin. I think that would be an astute way of uh, describing Ephesus. The actual name Ephesus, what do you think Ephesus means? Do you know what the name Ephesus means? No. Ephesus, Ephesus means desire. So the very name means desirable and it fits well with the the renowned sensuality of this city. You can go and walk through Ephesus today. Has anyone been to Ephesus? Yeah. It's ruins, right? Yeah. But you can the archaeological digs have shown some quite marvellous things which align completely with Acts chapter nineteen. If you read the story about the foundation of the church of Ephesus in Acts 19, you'll, you'll come across some amazing landmarks. You've got the synagogue, you've got the school of Tyrannius, you've got the temple of Artemis, you have the theatre. The theatre, they believed at that time, was 25,000 people. You could seat 25,000 people. That's a pretty large theatre, even in today's terms. You know, it's a quarter of the MCG. Pretty large. They believe that the city at this time is around 350,000 people. It's a large city in ancient times. But what dominated Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, or Artemis, depending which school you went to. It was known at the time as one of the seven wonders of the world, and it was the home to the goddess Artemis or Diana. She was worshipped as the daughter of Zeus and Leto and the twin sister of Apollo, if you're into a bit of Greek mythology. There you go. There's the family line. And this temple provided a refuge for criminals and it contained houses of prostitution. And these houses of prostitution surrounded the roads that were leading down to the temple. And it was a where east met west... So a large portion of the city that was there, the 350,000, worshipped this god, Artemis. And many travellers came into the city to worship the god, Artemis. It was a complete cesspool of depravity. It was awash with idolatry. It was infiltrated with magic and sorcery and occult practices. We get that from Acts chapter 19. And the culture was transient and, and bent on pleasure-seeking, as the city infrastructure dictates, right? Theatres, temples, baths, gyms, brothels. The whole place was around sensuality. It's this very culture that God, through his incredible gospel message, springs forth a church. A church that changes the shape of the world with the power of the gospel. A church that was uncompromising in many ways. When we first started this series, we read, didn't we, from Revelation that actually over a 40-year period, unfortunately, the church lost its first love. 
It could smell a heretic a mile away, strong in truth, but lost the compassion and love for others. But can you imagine being in this culture? Maybe we can. And this is why Paul is so strong in saying, your former way of life, these things of sexual immorality, impurity and covetousness or greed, these are an ongoing challenge for you. Things of filthiness, foolish talk and crude joking. Inside Ephesus, particularly inside this this culture of pervasive sin is going to squeeze in on you. So beware. See, the economy and the culture of the entire region was murdered materialism, sensuality and idolatrous diversions. As in any modern city, right? This is not a Ephesus only problem. This is any city of the world. And Paul's concern is based on the coercive nature of this type of culture and the impact that this culture can have on the believer's life and can have on the church. And he deals with it with one simple command. These things must not even be named amongst you. Not even named amongst you. These things, these sins, should be so universally absent from the body of the believers that there should be no occasion to associate them with the church. That's the force in which he's going here. Saying the church must be set apart. Believers must be set apart from these things. It's a message of no compromise. An absolute message of no compromise. Realise who you are in Christ. And he rounds it off in the end of verse 4. Suppose they're having this filthiness of speech and talk and crude joking as he looks at the, the sins of the, the triple vices of speech. So they're completely inappropriate if you're a follower of Christ. You know, and these three things refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. Now, I know we understand what that's like, right? We live in Australia. I give you a little, little example of that. When we, we went to the States and lived there for three and a half years with our family, our family were uh, teenagers, probably 11, 13, and 15 at the time we left, and three years later, three years older, came back. But when they came back, they noticed for the first time, our kids noticed for the first time, the vulgarness, the crude joking, and the foolish talk of the culture around about them as opposed to where they had been for the previous three years. 
Sure, they they weren't seeing saints in America, and it, but it just was more pervasive in this culture. We see it all the time in your workplaces. You hear it, right? You hear it all the time. It's fine in the workplace, but it's not fine in the church. That's the point he's making. As believers, those things should be removed from you and instead they should be replaced with thanksgiving. A distinctive mark of of a believer is thanksgiving and gratitude. Right? That's why we come on a Sunday morning, isn't it? To give thanks and gratitude and praise to the one who has removed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Whereas sexual impurity and greed expresses self-centeredness, thanksgiving is the exact opposite. It is a gratitude towards God's saving activity in creation and redemption and therefore acknowledges the very source of every blessing. You go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul starts the letter this way. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1, 3. That's the heart of gratitude and thanksgiving that each one of us, each day, each moment, should be reflecting upon. And when you do reflect upon that, the other things, the foolish speech, and the immorality will not be seen. Then he goes further and he provides two warnings. Two severe warnings in verses 5 and 6. I'm just going to read it in the NASB because I think the NASB does a, a good job of translating these verses. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Notice this is a certainty. This is an unusual construction in any language and and, uh, Paul talks about for you may be sure or for this you can be sure or in the NASB you know with certainty this is something that you should know this is not a difficult statement but a true statement this is known amongst the community this is known amongst believers that if these practices amongst believers are there then you question whether they even have belief. This is where he goes with this. Paul's just denounced the the works of impurity and greed and filthy vile speech and he now returns to the consequences of such ongoing habitual sins. I need to put that in there. We're talking about habitually doing these things. And he says... These habitual sins will what? Exclude the sinner from God's kingdom. Pretty black and white. It's a severe warning. It's really interesting too, if you're a bit of a scholar here. Um, he talks about the 
the inheritance and the kingdom of Christ and God. Only time in the New Testament that term is used together. The kingdom of Christ and God. I'm not going to explain the significance of that. We don't have time, but go away. Put that on a side margin. Why does Paul use those two terms there? You'll be blessed by looking at it. Because I think overall it's showing that Christ and God are one in divinity. It's a high Christology. So when you look at this, does this mean that you can lose your salvation? Does this mean there's some type of sin that can remove you from God's grace? I would say no. Paul is making the contrast statement here that if if a supposed believer is practising these things, they never were saved to begin with. He's basically saying the Spirit of God is absent in that person's life. And if the Spirit of God is absent in the person's life, they have not been regenerated because the the weight and body of Scripture tells us that once we are saved, we are secure in Christ. Go to the first chapter of Ephesians and you will see that. When we are in Christ, no one can take us away from being in Christ. So I think here he's, he's focusing, well, this is marks of unbelief. The people are continuing in this. Paul's not envisaging here a person who's given themselves up without shame or regret to this new lifestyle. Sorry, that's what he is saying. He's saying these people have given themselves up without shame or regret to this lifestyle, therefore showing there's no inward spiritual renewal. And secondly, he says they will experience the wrath of God and treated as sons of disobedience. Notice there in verse 6 it, it talks about let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So talking about deceptive words, the deceptive words are clearly verse 4, the filthiness, foolish talk or crude joking. They are empty words. And he's just saying, don't be influenced by the surrounding cultural norms or the thinking of the day or that associated behaviour. Because when that has happened, you are a son of disobedience. So once again, where else do we see sons of disobedience in the letter to Ephesians? Right back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. He gives a description of what a son of disobedience is. A son of disobedience is clearly someone who does not know Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is a severe warning 
And it's there as a design for the Ephesian believers to, to say, okay, what's our practice like? Are we walking in a manner worthy of our calling? And then Paul moves through 7 through 14 and gives a description of what a believer should be walking in. Walk as children of light. And he uses two basic metaphors in here, two basic picture languages, light and darkness and fruit. Good fruit and rotten fruit. That's the two things he uses to encourage us and exhort us encourage the Ephesians and exhort them and by extension to encourage us. He starts off with a negative, don't don't become partners with them, don't become partners with the sons of disobedience, don't become partners with those who are, who are going down this lifestyle choice. Don't become a partner in ungodly behaviour. To be a partner means to, to share with another in the same possession or relationship. Have nothing to do with separate and walk as children of light. And notice, as a child of light, it is you are light in the Lord. You are a reflecting agent of Christ's glory. We reflect the glory of God. We are not light ourselves, right? So, you know, for years we've sung that little Sunday school song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to let it shine. I won't sing it for you because it's not my gift. But you think about that. We are not light in ourselves. The light that we reflect is the light of Christ. We are reflecting agents of Christ. And this is seen right throughout this letter in the principle of our union with Christ. Here's a little challenge for you. I love giving you little challenges. Even though you don't do them, I love giving them to you. As you're reading through the book of Ephesians, as you're writing (laughs) through the book of Ephesians, circle how many times you see the term in Christ. Come back next week and tell me. How many times? Now, it could be a bit tricky. It doesn't actually sometimes say in Christ. It may use another term. In Him. Okay? So, have a go at that. And you will find that this is a major foundation stone of this particular letter. And that's what he's drawing to here. You are light of the Lord. You are in Christ. Your union is with Him. Now reflect His glory. Walk in that light. Your behaviour must conform to your new identity in Christ. And so what are the qualities of reflecting this light, reflecting Christ's light? Verse 9 gives us three fruit. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Oh, good. Goodness, rightness and truth. These three things are describing the fruit of light. They are common Christian graces which are produced by the Holy Spirit within our lives. They are supernatural characteristics. The result of God's sanctifying work and ongoing sanctifying work in our lives. Through the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control 
Goodness is part of that, part of the fruit of the Spirit. And in the context here, I think goodness is about um, conveying the sense of God's generosity to others. It's part of the reflecting process of, of, of the fruit of goodness. We reflect God's goodness to us and through us in generosity to others and in telling them about God's goodness. Righteousness or things that are right, DSV say, verse 9, always good and right. The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of things that are right is a righteous actions towards others. And truth, truthful actions towards others. So they are the fruit. They are the fruit that should be displayed as, as reflecting agents of the Lord. Because the opposite is darkness. Have you ever tried to define darkness and light? Just define it for me. No, don't worry, it's a big question. I would define it this way. Darkness is the absence of light. Darkness is the absence of light. And I think that stands true here when it comes to our Christian ethic. Because we are light in the Lord when we walk in the light it also tells us here we're able to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and that's a Christ centred approach to our Christian walk focuses on the truth of the gospel as the yardstick by which believers are to discern what is pleasing to the Lord Another way there, we see Psalm 119, verse 105, very famous verse. What does that say? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's another way, a, a, a surefire way of discerning, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. It's our only measure and yardstick of discerning is God's word. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And yet so often we shelve the thing. So often we are not reading God's word for instruction as often as we should. Finally, verse 11 through 14 takes another turn of what it means to walk as children of light. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So he's using the fruit metaphor, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. One of the functions of walking in light, and this is a kind of interesting thing inside the Christian community, is to expose sin. 
Because light exposes darkness. If you're reflecting God's light, you're going to expose sin. Particularly in this context, you're going to expose the things of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthy talk, filthy language, vulgar speech. What does to expose mean? It's used in the Gospel of John and um, some prophetic warnings and, and judgment with reference to conviction of sin. Okay? So John uses that that things will be exposed by Christ and through the Spirit. We also read in John that evildoers resist coming into the light in John 3.20 for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. So what does it mean to expose? I would think it means to prove or show someone to be guilty, reveal someone or something to be shameful. This is what the the meaning of of this particular word is in this context and in throughout the New Testament is to expose. There's a connection between the senses of convict and expose. They're sort of together. So the question needs to be asked here as you read these verses, um, who is partaking the unfruitful works of darkness? Start of verse 11. He says, take no part of it. He gives the warning, the command. Don't have anything to do with unfruitful works of darkness, but expose. And I think Paul here is talking to believers. I think the whole context of this is to believers. He's referring to believers. In the context, the instructions to believers, he's exhorting them, not the world to do the, the, the work of the fruit of light, secondly. And thirdly, in the New Testament, as you read through the New Testament, there's actually no reprimand of those in the world. Rather, Paul consistently exhorts, rebukes and, and disciplines those in the church. Read 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. It talks about believers being judges of those inside the church and not outside. So I think he's, he's, he's speaking to these Ephesian believers knowing that there's something going on amongst them. Knowing that some of them are, are stepping into these heinous sins again. He says, you walk in the light. You expose that. You expose these evil things for what they are. They're unfruitful works. Show them that their participation in these works is totally inconsistent with being a follower of Christ. This is a hard saying, right? This is hard. This is hard stuff. But this is stuff to the glory of God. He hates sin. When everything is exposed by God's light, by God's truth, everything becomes visible. This is what this verse says as well. Everything becomes visible. Just like our wonderful illustration at communion, right? You're doing the paint job. And the light is exposed down on the bonnet of the car. The imperfections are seen. So it is with God's light through the reflective agent, you and I as followers of him, things are exposed and seen. See, the unfruitful works of darkness are to be exposed in order that Offending believers might produce the fruit of light, goodness, righteousness and truth.
So how does that look? We pursue those we love who are in relationships or potentially relationships that are unequally yoked. We pursue those who are struggling with immorality, with pornography, with the sensuality of this culture. We expose them by the light of God's word with grace and truth. See, this is the problem. Sometimes we don't get the balance of grace and truth right. We just go there with the hammer. As children of light, as reflectors of God, in this process, you are full of grace and truth. And then finally, verse 14, last part of verse 14, we end with a, an interesting verse. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a summary statement. Uh, this potentially, we, we believe, as we look through it, is a hymn based on uh, Isaiah 26:19 and Isaiah 60, verse 1. It's not a direct quote from those things, but it's taking the principles of those verses and it's been formed into some form of hymn, we believe. And it's a hymn about repentance and encouragement. There's two commands in it. Awake, O sleeper. And the second command, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Awake from your spiritual laziness. Arise from your spiritual deadening from the path that leads to death and Christ will shine on you. Seems to make sense in the context of an admiration to, to believers who are starting to be enticed by the world. Awake from that spiritual darkness. Arise from the the path you're going on, the spiritual darkening that's taking place and deadening and Christ will shine on you. In other words, repent. See, Paul calls these Ephesian saints to walk in the light and you've got to ask the question, well, how can they effectively do this in a place where the politics, philosophy, economics and religion are all intertwined to capture an entire culture into pervasive sin? That's what he's dealing with. And you know what? This is not only a question for Paul's day, it's a question for our day. Because when we consider the pervasiveness of sin that's around about us, we too may wonder at times how can we walk in the light. We can at times, even inside the church, listen to the talk of the world and be sucked in by it. We can at times compromise and follow the world's strong voice without seeing and understanding that it's anti-God's truth. Example, the environmental debates. This culture is pervasive and they're saying, let's look after our environment. The environment's going to end if we don't do something about it. Greenhouse gas emissions, etc., etc. What's a biblical response to that? Yes, we are to be good stewards as Christians of everything God has given us. Absolutely. 
But God is the one who sustains all things. You go to Hebrews chapter 1. You go to Hebrews chapter 1 and it talks about Christ who is sustaining the very elements of the universe by the word of his power. And then you read the story that one day we know that the earth is groaning and waiting for redemption. So therefore one day the earth is going to be recreated in the plan of God. So you see, that example shows us a biblical mindset. Yes, I care for the earth because I'm a steward of what God has given me, but the reality is God has everything in control. There's many examples like that. In a culture where sin is so pervasive, there's none who's untouched, right? But that does not mean that sin is overpowering. By some measure this battle will always be overwhelming but through the power of the gospel of grace as we continually remind ourselves about what we have in Christ and through this wonderful truth of our union with Christ and the truth that the Holy Spirit guides and empowers us each day and every day we should realise that we do reflect God's glory and we do walk as children of light. Let's pray. Father, as we, we start the service, these are, these are weighty matters, Lord. And we can only cry out uh, to you in mercy to move in our hearts to, to be children of light. We thank you that through the saving and powerful work of Christ on the cross that we are children of light. We have that name if we put our faith and trust in you. Allow us not to be tripped up by the pervasiveness of our culture around about us and the the, the subtlety of sin. Allow us to have a biblical mindset and a framework towards the issues that surround us. Allow us to pursue our our brothers and sisters who may be treading down the track of disaster by giving in to the, the sinful lusts of this world. Father, we pray that we will be your reflective agents, agents of grace that reflect your, your truth in a world that desperately needs it. Pray this now in the powerful name of Christ, our risen Saviour. Amen.